Thanks guys. Um, so we're now going to be led in prayer by Sam, which will be followed by Adrian doing the Bible reading, which is about judges, which isn't judges. Um, and that'll be followed by Ben, who's giving a talk from that passage. But just before they come up, just a warning, um, the passage we'll be looking at today is graphic. It, it contains stuff like rape and murder. Um, so don't need to do anything, just a heads up so you can sort of brace yourself for yourself because it is a bit of an intense passage. I'm Adrian, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading today. Um, it's on your little handout. It's Judges 19. Um, in those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating, drinking, and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, "'Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go.' So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. Then, and when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there the night. <laughs> On the morning of the fifth day when he rose, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then, when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, and his, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone. The servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house. Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. 
Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house and with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set, for home, set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Well, this year we've been uh, working our way through the book of Judges and uh, we've seen Israel spiralling downwards, rebelling against God, uh, being handed over to their enemies, crying out, in their suffering, being rescued by a saviour that God raises up and enjoying peace, only to fall back into rebelling against God over and over and over again. And as we've moved from one major judge to the next, we've kept spiralling downwards, going through the same cycle but getting worse and worse all the time, until in these final chapters... Israel hits rock bottom. We're told in verse 1, Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. And it's a verse that raises all sorts of questions. Why does a Levite have a concubine instead of a wife? Why is he effectively in a de facto relationship and not married? And why has his concubine been unfaithful to him? The implication here is not that she's been sleeping around, but rather that she's left and she's gone back to her parents. But why? It's not a great start. But then, after four months, things do take a more positive turn. Verse 3, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. And that sounds a bit better, doesn't it? It's not her husband went to kidnap her. It's not her husband went to demand her back. But he went to persuade her to return. And initially things seemed to go well. She seems receptive to his efforts and so does her dad. She took him into her parents' home and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. It seems like it's a bit like the story from last week where we started out with Micah confessing that he had stolen the silver from his mother. But then things start to look up as he returns it, brings it back. Things are looking up here. In fact, they're kind of reminiscent of Genesis 24. where Abraham's servant goes to find a wife for Isaac. 
Uh, it plays out very much the same sort of way. He meets Rebecca, she welcomes him, and so does her father. Abraham's servant is invited in, he eats, he drinks, he spends the night. Uh, and here, just like in Genesis 24, when the Levite gets up the next morning and prepares to go with the woman, the family urge him to stay a little longer. It's actually starting to sound a little bit like one of the great love stories of the Bible, the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Except here in Judges, there's something just a little skew-whiff about it all. In Genesis 24, when the family urged Abraham's servant to stay a little longer, he refused. Do not detain me now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. But here, the Levite doesn't head straight back home. He stays for another three days, eating and drinking and sleeping. And then the fourth day, verse 5, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. So the two of them sat down? Does that strike you as a little odd? It strikes me as odd. Where's the woman? Where's the mother, for that matter? It's just the two men sitting down, eating and drinking. The woman is just out of the picture. On the morning of the fifth day, verse 7, the Levite gets up to go, but again the father-in-law prevails upon him to stay and eat some more, and again invites him to spend another night. But this time the Levite is determined to go. In Genesis, when Abraham's servant decided to go... The family asked Rebecca, will you go with this man? And she replied, I will go. But here, no one asks the woman anything. In fact, throughout this whole story, she is completely voiceless. As evening approaches, they set out towards Jebus, Jerusalem, which at this point is not an Israelite city. And it all feels very ominous. The eerie, silent journey through the desert landscape. The light fading, tumbleweed rolling across the prairie. And then comes the fateful decision to pass by Jebus and spend the night in an Israelite town. Surely they'll be safe in an Israelite town. And as the last rays of light fade from the sky, they arrive in Gibeah. Verse 15... They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. It's eerie. It's got a horror movie kind of feel to it. Late at night, in the desert, the lonely motel with the flickering lights. Hello? Is there anyone there? Then an old man from Ephraim, not a local, comes in from the fields. Verse 17, when he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? The Levite explains that he's from Ephraim um, and uh, that no one has invited them in, so they're spending the night in the square. Verse 19, we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply you whatever you need. 
only don't spend the night in the square. There's a sense of foreboding over the whole thing. Why is the town so empty? You get the sense of the shutters just closing. Why is the old man so insistent that they don't spend the night in the square? Is he just being hospitable to a fellow Ephraimite? Or is there something more to it? And why does this all sound so familiar? Like we've seen this movie before. Well, it's because we have. This is a remake of Genesis chapter 19. Whereas evening approaches, two angels, fresh from visiting Abraham, arrive in the town of Sodom. They plan to spend the night in the town square, but an old man, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, not a local, sees them and he says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. We've seen this story before, and we know that it doesn't end well. After Lot invited the two angels into his house, the men of Sodom flooded into the streets, surrounded the house, and called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And sure enough, the same thing happens here. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. And so now we know what the old man was afraid of. Now we know why he was so desperate that they not spend the night in the square. A violent mob intent on gang-raping the man. Fresh meat. And just like in Genesis, the old man goes outside and he says, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. And as we watch on in horror, he makes exactly the same appalling offer that Lot did in Genesis 19. Don't take the men, take the women instead. Verse 24, look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now and you can use them and do whatever you want. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Now there's something about us, I don't know whether it's uh, been sort of taught to us by Hollywood or whether it's something that's just kind of deeply ingrained in our psyche. But when we see two groups and we look at one group and we go, they're the baddies, we're inclined to think that the other group must be the goodies. Because that's how stories work, isn't it? You have bad guys and you have good guys. But actually not all stories work like that. Uh, Several years ago, um, it was Valentine's Day and me being the romantic guy that I am, uh, took my wife out to watch a movie. We went to the Somerville Auditorium, uh, just up the other end of UWA. And um, I thought, well, you know, I'll be sophisticated, take her to see a French movie. 
uh, Gerard Depardieu, and uh, it was sort of like a police movie about them investigating, trying to find the mole in the police unit. And I thought, you know, there's something for her, there's something for me, there's, uh, it's all good. And as you watch it, you realise that there are the bad guys who are opposed to Gerard Depardieu. And they're violent, and they're nasty, and they're awful. And of course, Gerard Depardieu, he's the big name actor, he's the hero, he must be the good guy, right? And then at the point where he's repeatedly punching a woman in the face, you think, maybe he's not the good guy after all. In fact, there were no good guys in the film. It was just bleak and horrible and awful. Check out your movies before you take your wives and girlfriends <laughs> out on Valentine's Day. There are no good guys in this story. The old man says, don't do this to my guest, but isn't the woman his guest as well? And who would send their daughter out to be gang raped? Their own families, the men who are supposed to love and protect them, treat the women as though they're nothing. Raping men is disgusting, but raping women, well, we can negotiate about that. No, no, we can't. In Genesis 19, the angels know that. When Lot offered his daughters to the mob, the angels dragged him back inside and they slammed the door and they said, get out of this place because we're going to destroy it. But there are no angels here. There's no one with a clear sense of right and wrong, just two selfish, callous men doing what seemed best to them. The Levite grabs his concubine, he shoves her out the door and the mob fall upon her. They rape her and abuse her throughout the night until verse 26. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. I reckon this is the worst story in the whole Bible. It's brutal, it's nasty, it's bleak, it's hopeless. There is nothing good about it. There are no good guys. They're all bad guys. Israel have hit rock bottom, drowning in their own sin. They're supposed to be the people of God, but they've ended up worse than Sodom, the epitome of evil. But believe it or not, it gets worse. In verse 27, when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. You think, when her master? What happened to her husband? What exactly is the nature of the relationship here? He stepped out to continue on his way as though nothing had happened. Get up. Let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. 
not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine. We must do something, so speak up. We become desensitised to evil frighteningly quickly, don't we? Every week you can read about women being raped and murdered in the newspaper. We read about it so often that it no longer shocks us. But occasionally something so awful, something so repulsive, something so sickening happens that even the most hard-hearted cry out and say, this can't go on, we've got to do something. And in the midst of the everyday violence and abuse of women, Israel are finally shocked into action. In chapter 20, verse 1, all Israel come together and assemble before the Lord and say to the Levite, tell us how this awful thing happened. And so the Levite presents his testimony. I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. So far, so good. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. But wait a minute. Who exactly surrounded the house? He makes it sound like it's all the men of Gibeah. And in Genesis 19, it was all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old. But in Judges 19, verse 22, it wasn't that, was it? It was some of the wicked men of the city. And what did they intend to do to him? He says they intended to kill him. But that's not quite true either. They intended to rape him. Now, that's awful. But he's not exactly telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He says, they raped my concubine. Well, yes, that is true. But it's not the whole truth, is it? He's conveniently left out the part where he handed her over to them. And she died. And again, yes, that is true. But when? So you assume that she died on the threshold of the door, didn't you? But does it actually say that? We know she didn't respond when her husband spoke to her. We know that he put her on his donkey. But did he lay her across it dead? Or did he put her on it severely traumatised, maybe catatonic, but alive? We aren't told, which raises the disturbing possibility that she died not at the hands of her rapists, but at the hand of her husband, a brutal, callous man who could no longer find any use for her. Verse 6, I took my concubine, I cut her into pieces and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. He sounds offended by the moral decline of Israel, but is that really what he's upset about? Or is he just upset that it happened to him? In fact, in his mind, he seems to see himself as the primary victim. This has been done to him. And he blames the entire town of Gibeah. And by his distortions and his demand for vengeance, he unleashes an unprecedented wave of bloodshed and violence throughout Israel. As a witness, he fails to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And instead of operating as a proper court... Israel operate as a lynch mob. 
They set out to punish a gang of rapists, but they end up committing genocide. They lose 40,000 of their own men fighting against Benjamin. And when they finally win, they burn not only Gibeah, but every city they come across, killing men, women and children in the process. Out of 25,000 Benjaminite men, only 600 escape. And after they've done this, Israel are filled with regret. What have we done, they say. Instead of surgically removing the skin cancer, they've hacked off an entire limb. What started out as an attempt to seek justice for a murdered woman has led to the slaughter of not only most of the men of Benjamin, but apparently every single marriageable woman in the tribe. Israel have vowed never to let any of their daughters marry the remaining Benjaminites. There are no wives left for them. An entire tribe of Israel is doomed. But it still gets worse. In their desire to find wives for the remaining Benjaminites, to salvage what's left of this tribe, Israel discovered that the town of Jabesh Gilead didn't come up to fight against Benjamin. So they decide, here's an opportunity for a solution. They attack Jabesh Gilead, they kill the men, and they kidnap every virgin in the town, 400 of them, to be wives for the Benjaminites. But there are 600 Benjaminite men left, only 400 women. So they urge the Benjaminites to kidnap another 200 girls from a festival to the Lord that's happening in Shiloh. So what started out as a quest to bring justice for the rape and death of a vulnerable young woman has ended up with the slaughter of over 65,000 Israelites and the kidnapping and presumably rape of 600 women. Well, what are we to make of this awful story? If you think that the Bible is there to tell you inspirational stories of how to be nice, then you're going to struggle with this one, aren't you? But the Bible is not about the triumph of the human spirit. It's not about searching for the hero inside yourself. It's about how corrupt the human spirit is. It's about what happens when there is no king and everyone does as they see fit. But isn't that the governing ethos of our day? That no one has the right to tell me what to do. Who are you to tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing? Judges shows us where that attitude leads. When people reject God as their king and do as they see fit, it doesn't lead to a world of justice and liberty for all. It leads to chaos and disaster for everyone, but especially for women. The sexual revolution of the 60s was supposed to bring us a golden age of sexual liberty and freedom, but... Instead, it's brought us a tsunami of internet porn, a culture where sex is not about love and lifelong commitment to the other, but about my own personal entertainment, regardless of what it might cost others. A culture where women are used by men and thrown away when they lose interest. But who can say that I'm doing anything wrong? How can you say that? Are you any better than me? I've got rights. Across Australia, many women are used as prostitutes, disposable objects for the sexual gratification of men. And many in our society want to defend it. Who are you to say that sex work is wrong? 
but it is wrong. It's wrong for men to take advantage of women. They're not here for our entertainment. The fact that some women are complicit in the use and abuse of other women, or even in their own use and abuse, doesn't make that okay. It only makes it more tragic. Is it too strong to call Western society a rape culture, as some have done? I would like to think so, but I'm afraid that they might be right. But that is part of what happens when a society turns its back on God, when there is no king and everyone does what they see fit. Christianity sometimes gets bagged out as being patriarchal, as being a religion that oppresses women. Uh, And it's true that Christians haven't always treated women the way they ought to have. But historically, when the gospel comes to a society and people put their faith in Jesus, it's good for everyone, but it's especially good for women. I think you can see something of that here at CU in the way that the guys treat the girls. It's not that the guys are perfect. We're not perfect by any means. Uh, Some of us have some pretty big blind spots. Some of us really need to grow up. Some of us need to stop being boys and learn how to step up and take responsibility. Some of us have never had particularly good role models of how to treat women and we're still learning how to do that. We're not perfect, not by a long shot. But as I look around CU, I do think that we are a place where as a woman, and I'm conscious that I say this as a man, (laughs) where as a woman, I think you can feel safe. You don't need to worry that the guys are hitting on you, that they're trying to get you into bed, or that they think you're less valuable because you're a woman. You don't need to be afraid that if a guy asks you out, it's just for his entertainment, instead of a genuine interest in you and a desire to seriously explore committing himself to you for life. Now, I could be wrong. It would be interesting to hear from the girls on this. But hang around and see. How do the guys treat the girls here? And guys, don't let me down. (laughs) But the critical question is, what makes men like that? Because if you could bottle this, then that would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? Is it just that the guys here are all sensitive new age guys? (laughs) That they've been emasculated by 50 years of feminism? Is it just that we've managed to build a good culture and give us any random group of 200 uni students, we could do the same again? No, I don't think so. It's because they've been converted. They've given up control of their lives to Jesus and God, by the power of his spirit, is changing them to increasingly resemble his son. Because when you look at Jesus, well, you see what a real man is. He's a strong man who stepped up and took responsibility. A kind man who treated women as equally valuable to men. A loving man who welcomed prostitutes, not to use them, but to remove their shame and restore their dignity. He was a man who, when an armed mob pounded on the door of the Garden of Gethsemane, looking to drag him out and kill him, didn't shove someone else out the door and say, take them, but said, if you're looking for me, let the others go. 
a man who allowed himself to be dragged off by the mob, stripped and humiliated, beaten and killed, so that others might live. He's a priest who, instead of offering his wife as a sacrifice because of his sin, offered himself as a sacrifice for the sin of us, his bride, whom he loves. He's God's king who took the punishment we deserve for doing what we saw fit instead of what God saw fit. He's the king who rose to new life to rule not only over all Israel, but over the whole world. In this age, there's always going to be people in rebellion against Jesus, and even those of us who have come under his rule are still fairly messed up, still fallible and capable of evil. But God's kingdom has broken into this world in the person of his son, King Jesus. It's broken in so that sinful, messed up people like you and me might be rescued by God's King. That we might turn to Jesus and experience forgiveness and transformation. And when our King returns to bring true justice, to execute judgment on all who have done what they see fit instead of doing what God sees fit, well, then we will have heaven on earth gathered around Jesus, praising him for giving himself for us. And we'll be doing what he sees fit. And God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, the order of judges, the order of our world will have passed away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we mourn for our society and we mourn for the evil of our own hearts. Father, thank you that in spite of our evil, because of our evil, you sent Jesus to rescue us, to lay down his life so that we might go free and that you've poured out your spirit to change us, to make us more like your son. (coughs) Father, please have mercy on us. Continue to change us. Have mercy on those who don't know you. Rescue them from the foolish attempt to be king of their own lives and bring them into the kingdom of your son whom you love. We ask it for our sake. We ask it for his sake. Amen.